Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the second installment of our studies in Daniel chapter 7, which is, by the way, part 12 overall of these studies in Bible prophecy. I trust that you have all been following by listening each installment each week, sometimes even more than once, to ensure that you are understanding as much as possible of the content being shared. It is a proven fact that with each successive time that you listen to or go over the material of any study, you're able to see much more than you saw and get much more out of it than the previous time. Your understanding broadens and deepens as the full picture comes into clearer view. Now, today's topic is the dominion restored. In our previous study, we touched on the fact that the prophet's vision in Daniel chapter 7 runs parallel to the image seen in chapter 2. This image we spent the past weeks studying. We saw that both chapters 2 and 7, that is, cover the same ground, the same period of human history, yet differing in a few important points. These are, number one, the symbols used in chapter 7 are that of four wild and ferocious beasts, which is a way of describing the nature of earthly kingdoms. They come to power using force, violence, and bloodshed to tear each other apart, to war against and conquer each other. Second point, in contrast, the symbols used in chapter 2 are various metals comprising a great image together signifying the different earthly kingdoms which would arise in their order in human history. So it's just looking at the same time period from two different perspectives. The third point is the vision in chapter 7 brings additional details to the table not given in chapter 2. By the way, much of these details are still to come as we progress through the chapter. Now let me say, dear friends, that God does nothing without a purpose. As he unfolds these details to us in his word, it is very purposeful on his part. None of it is just by chance. To all who will listen and receive it, God reveals the things that will become very significant to their understanding in the time that we live in, so that they will be able to clearly see the workings of the enemy and not be swept up in his deceptions. He wants us to be able to stand apart, free and faithful to him, as time winds down and he prepares to step in and set up his everlasting kingdom. Only those who remain faithful to God will be in his kingdom that reigns forever and ever, and all others find themselves in the same destiny as the devil who deceived them. To show this point, the book of Revelation fast-forwards to the end and gives us a view of how things end up for both deceivers and those deceived by them. Revelation 19 verse 20 says, And the beast was taken, and with him the false prophet that did miracles before him, with which he deceived the people that had received the mark of the beast, and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And Revelation 20 and verse 10 tells us, 
And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night, for ever and ever. So we see then that both the deceivers and those deceived by them share a common destiny. The devil, the false prophets who used miracles to deceive many, the beast and all those who were deceived end up in the same place. Thus, having a clear understanding of things enables us to navigate through the many confusing voices which are all shouting, this way, go that way, come this way, come that way. It enables us to hear the voice of God as He communicates with us by His Spirit through His Word and to take a firm stand in loyalty to God and His everlasting kingdom. Now, as we saw a couple of studies earlier, the prophet says that in these matters, the wicked shall do wickedly and the wicked shall not understand, but the wise shall understand, Daniel 12 and verse 10. Now, you will remember, dear friends, that in chapter 2, the four metals were gold, silver, brass, and iron, representing the four kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome in that same order. But in chapter 2, there was also a fifth phase after the Iron Kingdom of Rome. The iron representing Rome, the fourth kingdom in succession, carried over into the feet and toes as iron mixed with clay. So therefore, you have five distinct phases in which the fourth kingdom transitions and carries over into a fifth stage. But at stage five, it manifests itself not then as just iron, but iron mixed or intermingled with something else, iron mixed with clay, myrically, the Bible says. And we explained what that meant in earlier studies. Now, since we're dealing with prophecies that are parallel to each other, it must also be that in chapter 7, we should be able to see a fifth stage, and not just a fifth phase of history that arises separate from the fourth, but it must also be that this fifth kingdom must come out of the fourth kingdom, which is Rome. In other words, the fourth kingdom being carried over in some way into the fifth phase as the fifth kingdom. And emerging out of the fourth empire, it must also be a religious power as symbolized in chapter 2 by the miry clay. To re-emphasize this point, dear friends, the fifth kingdom must come out of the fourth kingdom and must also manifest in a different way from the previous kingdoms before it. In other words, the gold was the gold, then the silver was the silver, then the brass was the brass, and then the iron was the iron. But then the Iron Kingdom transitions over into phase 5 in a later stage in history and becomes iron mixed with clay. So too, in chapter 7, where we see the lion representing Babylon, which parallels to the gold in chapter 2, and the bear representing the Persian Empire, which parallels to the silver in chapter 2, and the leopard representing Greece, which parallels to the brass or bronze in chapter 2, and this great and terrible beast with ten horns and iron teeth representing Rome, 
which represents the legs of iron in chapter 2, it means, therefore, there must also be some way in which this fourth beast, this great and terrible beast with iron teeth, also carries over into a fifth phase as we study chapter 7. And this fifth phase must also involve a false religious power, just as the miry clay in chapter 2. Because these two chapters, as we've said, are parallel prophecies that cover the same ground. And, dear friends, we will see this. But before we pick up where we left off last week with the fourth beast, I want to emphasize that it is crucially important that you get what I have just said in the last few minutes on this point. So if you have to pause here and pray to God just to open your mind to grasp this matter, do so. If you have to go back to chapter 2 of Daniel and read again verses 31 to 45, where the dream is interpreted, do so. Do so if you need to because there is some heavy stuff that will come up later in this chapter and it is built upon what we have said before. Now last week we stopped at Daniel chapter 7 verse 7 with the emergence of the fourth beast, the fourth world power to come into being. So we will pick up right there and after some explanations we will move straight into verse 8 which shows the fifth empire emerging out of the fourth. Daniel 7 verse 7 After this I saw in the night visions and behold a fourth beast dreadful and terrible, and exceedingly strong, and it had great teeth of iron. It devoured and broke in pieces, and stamped upon the pieces with its feet, and it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. So the prophet sees in vision this great beast arise out of the stormy waters. It has huge iron teeth and ten horns upon its head. Naturally, he is greatly perplexed by what he's seeing. He's thinking, what is all this? What does it all mean? No wonder that later on in the chapter, God has one of his angels interpret the dream for Daniel. Now, let's break down verse 7. The prophet sees this beast, the fourth, meaning Rome, and upon his head ten horns. Horns used in this prophetic context represent powers. In Habakkuk chapter 3 and verse 4, we read, And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. But prophetically speaking, horns here are used also to represent powers or kingdoms within a kingdom. Let me explain. As a nation gets more powerful and expands into a ruling empire, it conquers more and more countries, and these conquered lands become a part of the empire. Many times, these kings surrender to the superpower to avoid their land being destroyed and devastated. But sometimes they rebel. If they rebel, they are usually killed and a puppet king is installed in their place, one who obeys the ruler of the empire. So these are individual kingdoms which make up the empire, kingdoms within a kingdom. As an illustration, the book of Esther records events which took place during the period of the Persian Empire. Remember, this empire had replaced the empire of Babylon. 
and a king by the name of Ahasuerus was the Persian ruler over the empire at that time. Now notice what we read in Esther chapter 1 verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, this Ahasuerus reigned from India even unto Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. So notice that Ahasuerus' rulership extended all the way to India and even beyond to Ethiopia in that time. And all these conquered provinces had their kings, but they were incorporated into the Persian Empire, and thus these kings were answerable to Ahasuerus. These provinces were individual nations within the Persian Empire, in other words, kingdoms within a ruling kingdom. From time to time, some nation would try to break away and re-establish its own independence. The ruling empire would then dispatch an army to bring them back into subjection. But what if a number of nations tried to break away at the same time? Sometimes the ruling empire has spread itself out so thin by conquering so many other nations that it does not have enough military resource to fight so many battles at the same time. And so these nations break away, get away with it, and the ruling empire is divided. And this usually encourages others to break away too, to become separate horns or separate powers, independent from the ruling empire. History shows that this has happened over and over again. Now back to the chapter. By showing us this fourth beast having ten horns upon its head, God is showing us that the Roman Empire would, in history, eventually be divided into ten kingdoms. After ruling over the nations for over 500 years, it happened. Dissatisfaction and revolts and rebellions developed, and Rome eventually was divided. Having said that, we can now move on to verse 8 of Daniel chapter 7. As I considered these horns, behold, another little horn rose up among them, which plucked up three of the first horns by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of man, and a mouth speaking great things. So the prophet says, as he considers these ten horns on the head of the fourth beast, wondering what they meant, he saw another little horn come up among them, an eleventh horn. And as it arises and gets bigger, more powerful, it uprooted three of the ten horns that were there before it. And this eleventh horn that becomes more powerful than the others had eyes like a man and spoke great things. It will be seen later in this chapter that when it says this little horn had a mouth speaking great things, it does not mean speaking good things. It means speaking great things against God. It will blaspheme against God and persecute the true people of God. But that will be for a later study. It will be shown also at a later time that this power that emerges out of the fourth beast, represented as the little horn, is a power that is ruled over by a man, of which the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2 and verse 3, when he wrote, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there be a 
falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. But as I said, that's for a later study. By now, the prophet is shocked, just as you or I can have a dream and in it we are emotionally stirred. The prophet in vision is stirred. He is shocked at what he is seeing and hearing. It is overwhelming to him. And thus there is a break in the flow as God mercifully fast-forwards the vision to encourage us by showing us what will be at the end before going back to show the things that this little horn will do. And that is why right after introducing this little horn in verse 8, before telling us about the horrendous things that it will do, the prophet seems to take a detour in verse 9 as, as if to say, but don't worry, because eventually it will come to an end and God's everlasting kingdom will replace all earthly kingdoms. So let's go to verse 9. I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame, and his wheels as burning fire. So the prophet watched all the events down through history until God sits in judgment over the affairs of mankind. Notice what follows in verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand thousands ministered unto him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set and the books were opened. Every evil deed, every thought and word, every act of rebellion against the government of God will have to face the judgment in due time. The Apostle Paul writes, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, Romans 14 and verse 10. The good thing, however, is that all those who remain faithful to Christ, all those who are obedient to Christ, who have received and accepted forgiveness through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, will be vindicated in the judgment. And they are not vindicated by their obedience but their obedience shows that they are forgiven and covered by the righteousness of Christ, and thus they obey Him, and thus they are seen as blameless in the judgment. But the disobedient will receive the fruit of their own rebellion. Now after describing the judgment seen in verse 10, verse 11 continues by saying, I beheld then, because of the voice of the great words, in other words, words of blasphemy, which the horn spoke. I beheld even until the beast was slain and his body destroyed and given to the burning flames, as we saw earlier in Revelation 19 and 20 and verse 10. Now, verse 12 says, Concerning the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and time. That's for a future study. But notice their dominion was taken away. Why? Because they were conquered by the succeeding kingdoms that came after them. Now, we move back to the judgment scene at verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. So the prophet is seeing way into the future from his day. He sees Christ come in before the Father who sits in judgment. He is described as one like the Son of Man, 
coming before the Father with the clouds of heaven. And notice also that these clouds are referred to as they, they brought him near before him. So these are not clouds that you see when you look up into the sky. This is a metaphor, a figure of speech for heavenly angels. As the Father sits in judgment, Jesus enters with an entourage of heavenly angels. Another minor but important point is this. Well, it is not minor as a matter of fact, it is major. He is seen as the Son of Man coming in. This means that he bears our human nature. So this scene must be something that takes place sometime after Christ came to earth and takes upon himself our human nature by being born of Mary. He came and lived an obedient life on earth, died for the sins of the world, was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Now, I'm not saying that this judgment scene is taking place right after Christ resurrected and ascended into heaven. What I'm saying is that this scene has to be something, some event that takes place after he came on earth and took our human nature because he is seen as the Son of Man coming in before the Father in heaven as he sits in judgment. Now, as to the timing of this event, that too is for a future study. But he comes in before the Father to receive something. Verse 14, And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom that which shall never be destroyed. So the judgment brings all earthly dominions to an end and Christ receives the everlasting kingdom and dominion. Now this is very important. Because in Genesis chapter 1 verse 28, concerning Adam and Eve, we read, And God blessed them, and God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply, and replenish the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fishes of the sea, and over the fowls of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. To no angel was dominion ever given. But God made man in his own image and gave him dominion over the whole earth. But because of sin, mankind lost this dominion over the earth. It passed into the hands of Satan. And that is why Satan is called the prince of this world, John 14.30. In other words, the rule of this world. And also the God, lowercase g-o-d, the God of this world in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4. And in 1 John 5, 19, we're told that the whole world lies under the control of the wicked one. But Jesus came to defeat the enemy, to die for the sins of mankind, and to win back the dominion lost by mankind. But in order to do this, he had to take on human nature. The dominion was lost by man, and therefore the dominion must be regained by man. The condemnation and death which resulted from sin was also due to man, and thus must be borne by man. And thus our loving Savior stepped down and stepped into our shoes, and by giving a life of perfect obedience in place of Adam's disobedience, he wins this dominion back. And later on in this chapter, we will see that 
after the beast and all earthly kingdoms are destroyed, Jesus then turns and gives this dominion back to his faithful and obedient people. So we have a lot to look forward to, dear friends. In a universe finally freed from all pain and sickness and suffering, free from every trace of the curse of sin, man's dominion will be restored. And the prophet wants us to know this before he goes on to show us what this little horn power will do throughout history. All this we will pick up on next week by God's grace. But until then, dear friends, keep trusting in God and living in thankfulness to our dear, loving, merciful Savior. Be safe and may the peace and comfort of God be upon you all. Music